welcome to episode three of Meanderings. We have a very special treat for you today. I've brought in a guest presenter. This is Andrew Morse, a new resident of Bond Beach, moved here last October at the same time as I did, which is quite lucky considering that we're married. So, Andrew, we discussed uh, some ideas about what we should discuss today and you brought up the topic of languages and learning languages, a very interesting topic, one that's very close to my heart, and I would like to sign over the presentation of this episode to you. Welcome, Andrew Morse. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, the question of language has come up quite often, uh, both prior to and uh, during our marriage. And it's a, a theme that can be interwoven with travel, which we've talked about before on this program. I think what I'd like to do is just explore how we've negotiated the issue of language, what we've learnt, how it's affected past lives, and how it affects one's knowledge of words and how it makes one want to look up the meaning of words, where they come from, inevitably leading back to the inevitable Proto-Indo-European, Proto <laughs> yeah. which I think when you look at some of these linguistic websites, the, the jargon that's employed is certainly in a, a league of its own. But putting that aside, we're just going to look generally on the uh, topic of language today. And I'd like to just pose a few things to Sarah, actually, about her experience with acquiring and using language. Um, essentially, her she has total fluency in French, both in a strict grammar sense and in a vernacular sense. She also has a working knowledge of Swedish, which you may think is an unusual combination, but as the show goes through, we'll tell you how that came about. So, Sarah, what I'd like to ask you first is your acquired language skills in French are fairly apparent to anyone who listens to you. In fact, you're often mistaken for a native but did this interest start at school or was, was French one of your favourite subjects? What, what led you into this? Oh, I think it's multifactorial. My parents were always uh, Francophiles and uh, I do remember my first encounter with France. Uh, when I was six years old, we lived in Oxford for a year. My dad was on sabbatical at the university there and uh, we had a, a trip across the channel to France and Spain and my single memory of Paris as a six-year-old was sitting in a cafe and being weed on by a pigeon. So there you go. That was the start. Perhaps inauspicious, but uh, I certainly uh, enjoyed my, my parents' uh, love for France and, uh, and the fine wine and the food and the, the beautiful places and the movies and the literature that all came from France. This, of course, meant that when I went to high school, I, I picked French rather than German. And it turned out I had a little bit of a faculty for languages. Really, really enjoyed it. It was, in fact, my best subject at HSC, the old VCE. And uh, then it was a little bit dormant for many years while I was at university. However, when I was travelling for my studies... I did meet my first husband who was French and that of course meant that I was again interested in regaining fluency. And after I graduated, I did my intern year and then I wanted to go to France for a year with the idea that I would become properly fluent so that one day 
Guy and I could have bilingual children. At the end of one year, I had worked as a doctor and I had found... Well, that brings us to an interesting point. Could you relate to listeners your experience at the Louis Pasteur Institute? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So, as I said, I had a very good schoolgirl knowledge of French. This means that I could say a few things, but when you're in France listening to natives, it's almost impossible. Everything is so fast, so difficult to understand. And uh, I ended up having an interview within about two or three months of arriving Uh, with the professor at the Pasteur Hospital, one of the places that discovered the HIV virus, quite a well-known place in Paris. They did research as well as look after infectious diseases patients. And I somehow struggled through this interview. Plus, I looked about 12 at that time. I was 24, but I looked about half that age. And he asked me all sorts of questions, and I was able to answer them. And he came to one particular question that I couldn't for the life of me figure out what it was. For those of you who have some working knowledge of French, see how you go. The question was this, vous êtes taisé, madame? I'm thinking, taisé, taisé, doesn't sound like anything I know. But at that time, I don't know where this confidence came from, but I thought, look, you have to answer, you have to answer as if you know what you're talking about. So I said, oui, monsieur, (laughs) and got the job. What the question meant was, it's effectively a cognate for the word thesis. Are you thesist? In France, rather than doing an internship, they do a thesis. And as I had done my internship, effectively I was tizzy without actually knowing it. So leading on from that question, I remember you related an incident whereby there was the use of a particular medical term and this had been going on for about four or five months and you'd responded thinking that you knew what the actual definition of the word was. What was that word that led you into mirth at the end of this whole episode? Oh, my goodness. I know what you're talking about, yes. Uh, So I worked mainly in outpatients, seeing patients who came in, a lot of tropical illnesses and also, as I said, HIV. Um, And because with a lot of these illnesses you run a lot of blood tests, particularly liver function, and... uh, Uh, So I would tell people that their liver function tests were off. Now, people who know a little bit of French know that in a very general sense, if a word has an E at the end, it tends to be feminine. And if it doesn't, it might be masculine. And there's a word foi, F-O-I, without the E, and there's a word foi, F-O-I-E. Now, unusually, the one without the E is feminine and the one with the E is masculine. So I would tell people, uh, vous avez une maladie de la foi. You have an illness of the faith. After about four months, one kind patient said, hmm, I think you mean le foi, not la foi. And at that point, I realised and we all had a good laugh about it. Illness of the liver you were thinking of? <laughs> But the number of people who had illnesses of the faith, well, those first four months, there were many. Hmm. One thing I wanted to bring up then is you gradually increase your linguistic skills, but what was the thing that made you fluent? I know people say you have to immerse in a culture, and obviously that's the answer, but what assisted you in a path to a rapid acquisition of colloquial and linguistically proper French? Well... Uh, Working in the language was certainly an immersive experience and 
to be honest, I don't quite know how I managed, but uh, I suspect that because it was a highly regarded hospital, people mistakenly assumed that I was some high-level specialist from overseas. I was just a little wet behind the years post-intern doctor, um, but held my own in what I needed to do. And uh, so just having to speak with patients all day and with colleagues over lunch, I'll just remember that in France, it's very normal for doctors to have wine with lunch, or at least it was back then. <laughs> it seems outrageous to think of that now here. So first of all, there was working in French. Uh, I had a French husband, but by the end of the working day, I was usually quite tired and just wanted to speak English with him. Uh, the other thing was that after I'd finished that job, I decided I wanted to go back to full-time French studies. And uh, I went and did a full-time creative writing course, which was absolutely wonderful. I really enjoyed it. We had highly motivated students from all around the world and a wonderful, inspiring teacher. Josette Furic, if you are there, I remember you fondly. And, and that was wonderful because we had all the scope to do, explore the sorts of things that we wanted to explore, tenses that you don't even learn. And uh, it, was, was a, it was a great, lovely time. So there's those two things. There's a good solid foundation from school here and uh, working, being immersed, and then returning to study really with a, with a high degree of, of ambition. I wanted to be very, very good in French. And um, then it was also time because even though I had a faculty and even though I was living in France, uh, I was very confident that at the end of 12 months I'd be fluent and you probably would have thought that I was, but for me, it took two years. People do say it takes a couple of years. So by the end of two years, I did consider myself fluent. Did you do any intensives like the Alliance Francaise, for instance? Yes, that's exactly what I did after I finished work at the hospital. I went back to the Alliance and did the creative writing course there. That was the highest level course they had. I can tell from experience that this has stood Sarah in good stead because uh, when she does engage either by text or with local restaurateurs, a question frequently arises, where, where, where are you from France? <laughs> so I think that's the highest compliment of all. I love telling that to my children because they think I have a dreadful accent, but I actually have a very, very good accent. <laughs> At this stage, we'll just take a short break and we'll have a message from one of our sponsors. Oi, oi, oi. IGA is shopping nights. IGA where the price is right. Seaford North IGA for your groceries and liquor. IGA Express, there's nothing quicker. You, you can lead into the song. And here's one of the songs Andrew has picked for today. This is Talk to the Animals, Leslie Bricus. Matthew, think what it would mean. I could talk to the animals. Just imagine it, chatting to a chimp in chimpanzee. Imagine talking to a tiger, chatting to a cheetah. <laughs> what a neat achievement that would be. We could talk to the animals, learn their languages, maybe take an animal degree. I'd study elephant and eagle, buffalo and beagle, alligator, guinea pig and flea. I would converse in polar bear and python. And I would curse in fluent kangaroo. If people ask me, 
Can you speak rhinoceros? I'd say, of course, yes. Can't you? <laughs> I conferred with our furry friends, man to animal. Think of the amazing repartee. If I could walk with the animals, talk with the animals, grunt and squeak and squawk with the animals, and they could talk to me. If I consulted with quadrupeds, think what fun we'd have asking over crocodiles for tea. Or maybe lunch with two or three lions, walruses or sea lions. What a lovely place the world would be. If I spoke slang to a orangutan, the advantages any fool on earth could plainly see. Discussing Eastern art and dramas with intellectual llamas, that's a big step forward, you'll agree. I'd learn to speak in antelope and turtle. My Pekingese would be extremely good. If I were asked to sing in hippopotamus, I'd say why not of us, and would. If I could parley with pachyderms, it's a fairy tale worthy of Hans Anderson or Grimm. A man who walks with the animals, talks with the animals, grunts and squeaks and squawks with the animals. Polynesia, just think of it. And they could talk. That, of course, was Rex Harrison from Dr. Doolittle with Talk to the Animals. A couple of things really stand out in that particular song. First is the production values, just exquisite mixing when you think how old that is. And secondly, he must be one of the only people I can recall who could not actually sing but could talk through a song. It's consistent with My Fair Lady, with all of the things he did. He only held a few notes but made the most incredible advantage of them. Okay, moving on. I suppose it's time for me to just give you a little bit of my background in relation to language learning, which could be written on the back of a postage stamp in <laughs> reality. Um, I remember at school they offered you the choice of French and German. And when you think living in the Antipodes, what could be more bizarre? Why would you learn either of those languages? And that happened with my father's generation too, offered French and German. And it just seems to me strange that you would be learning a language or asked to choose a language that you will likely never use, not taught by native speakers, and in the day with the most primitive technical aids, not even cassette players where you could learn language and hear native speakers speak. So I often marvel on the lack of utility in offering those particular courses. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, today schools offer uh, a wider variety and more geographically apt languages for students to learn. But I don't know how I would have gone at Mandarin Chinese. It sounds incredibly difficult as a language. 
obviously, when I was learning French, it was difficult. It's damn difficult, even though it's one of the relatively easy languages for an English speaker to learn. However, all of my experience has been in uh, languages that do come from Europe, which means that there are uh, connections between French and English, connections between English and Swedish, uh, as English is fundamentally a Latin and German language. Which then led on, I mean, in relation to my particular experience, I had one term of French at school, which strangely I remembered, I think it came as a result of uh, reading a textbook that my grandfather had. He obviously was planning to travel at one stage and it was, you know, Monsieur so-and-so goes to Paris and needed to conduct negotiations with the French, which seemed odd because I would have thought that he would have tried to conduct them in English. But nevertheless, <laughs> this book, something must have stuck. And uh, the odd thing is, many years later, I remembered a lot of this material when I went to the Mount Eliza Community Centre to just do a bit of conversational French during the week. What was your reason for doing that? Oh, it was to meet people. <laughs> meet people? <laughs> people. And uh, we were guided through in conversational French by a wonderful French teacher there. Bonjour Sabine, if you're listening. And um, it was interesting to put it to the test because I went to a dinner party one night in a rather nice eastern suburb of Melbourne and Sarah happened to be there and... She let something slip during the conversation that she was fluent in French, and I thought, well, here's about my only chance to make myself look uh, unbeige. And so uh, I actually approached her, and, and uh, she asked me, "What would you, what are your ambitions, or what would you like to do?" And I'm, in appallingly accented French, I responded that I basically like to go travelling, particularly to Quebec. And that was quite daunting because I'm speaking to someone who is fluent, and yet here is me in fractured first-person, present-tense French trying to explain what they want to do in the future. But, but do you know what? That was my first uh, conversation with you and I was very impressed because, as a rule, even people who speak good French often will not want to speak with me because they know I'm fluent and they're just afraid of, of not being quite right. So I found it very courageous that anybody would try it at all. So hats off to you. And look where we are now. Indeed. But, you know, even attaining a limited fluency, and it's very limited with a capital L, it is very frustrating because eventually you do have to start communicating contextually with people. And you can say that the niceties, the conversational uh, fluidity that gets things moving, but when it comes to conceptual discussions, that is the really difficult bit. But uh, if you're on topic with someone... Uh, and you know what the topic is, particularly in relation to law, you can understand what a conversation's about because many of our terms come from Norman French. But off topic, forget it. You're, you're lost straight away. <laughs> Perhaps I could just ask you one little question in French and see if you could respond in French. Est-ce que c'est toujours difficile de parler français? Uh, toujours. C'est toujours difficile de parler en français parce que mon vocabulaire est rudimentaire. <laughs> Oh, but I understood exactly what you were saying. That's wonderful. So what tips did I give you to help you learn French? Oh, you marked my French teacher's homework. <laughs> I don't know that that was helpful, though. <laughs> but I do remember saying uh, one of the most difficult things about almost all languages, Swedish being a notable exception, is the conjugation. English, with its 
absolutely wonderful history of being a mix of languages and therefore people having to simplify it to speak to each other. Uh, we have very little conjugation. Conjugation, for those of you who are not linguists, is the way the verb changes. You say, I am, you are, he is. So very common verbs tend to be heavily conjugated and less common verbs, not as much. I run, you run, he runs. There's only the S at the end of he or she. And uh, in French, it's, it's much harder. In most older languages, it's much harder than in English. And uh, it can be a real bugbear for speaking correctly. However, in terms of being understood, once you name the verb, whether you get the conjugation correctly or not, uh, you will be understood. So I used to say to Andrew, look, you've actually got an amazing vocabulary. Just string some words together and forget the conjugation. You don't need to conjugate to communicate. As I just did in a dreadfully butchered fashion. So I apologise to anyone who's listening in relation to that. It's all right. It's a beautiful example of how you have to be willing to just make mistake after mistake after mistake because it's only in the actual communication with people in real time that you actually progress. So that is an absolutely essential part of learning any language. Do you have a tween who's driving you crazy on the socials? Is it a secure place for them to be? What should your social time look like? Are they just copying you? For answers to all these questions, join me, Claire Martin, at 4pm Tuesdays on Radio Caram on the Strong, Single and Human show.
That was Manhattan Transfer with Chanson d'Amour. A bit of an oldie, but a bit of a goldie, as they say. I'll just diverge a little into another one of Sarah's linguistic pursuits, and that was the acquisition of a working knowledge of Swedish. Sarah, why Swedish? I've wondered that myself. There's something about the sound of it that I really, really love. Uh, and I, it's, it's beautifully symbolised by the Swedish chef on the Muppet Show. It's got some sort of bouncy, fun melody. Quite musical. Uh, French has its own musicality, but it's quite different. In French... En français, c'est très gentil et c'est adorable de l'écouter. Uh, but it's, it's very monotone, whereas Swedish is... Therefore, Ligadiat and architect Norsi Minseng. It's very up and down. I really enjoyed that. So I suspect that was the uh, entree to it. And when I looked up Duolingo to see if they had Swedish, and they did, I thought, oh... Well, I'll do it as long as it's fun. It might sound torture to some people to regard acquisition as language as fun, but was it? And what was one of your primary memories of learning Swedish? Oh, there's quite a number, but uh, we had a, a road trip to Canberra, you and I, and <laughs> I had my Duolingo on. I was very keen to, to get a head start. So I had it on in the car, which is where you shared some of my knowledge. But it seemed, my memory is, that the whole first part was learning about tortoises eating strawberries. We'll probably get to that. There's some absurd phrases which we'll close with today on Duolingo's odd sentence structure and subject matter. But nevertheless, did, after acquiring a basic working knowledge, I remember we travelled to Sweden and you went to buy some tickets at the airport for the train trip into town. And in what I understood was perfectly grammatically and perfectly correct Swedish, you asked for tickets. And what happened? And what happened in the remainder of the trip? <laughs> well, what happened was he... Uh, he knew that I was speaking, knew that I wanted to speak Swedish, so he was one of the few people who responded in Swedish. However, what he responded with was how much it was, and numbers are always a very difficult thing, especially when they're quite high numbers. Um, so I looked at him then blankly. <laughs> he then reverted to English. <laughs> and this was repeated many a time. The Swedes are very fluent in English. Uh, and they would prefer to speak English with with me than to allow me to practice my Swedish. However, we managed to get a little bit of both in. What did they say about your accent? Oh, that was actually rather funny because throughout my 12 years in France, people would initially think maybe I was French. Then they'd think, oh, hang on, you sound Scandinavian. So it was quite a delightful irony that... When I was speaking Swedish, people said, oh, are you French? So how is it that an Australian person uh, ends up speaking French with a Swedish accent and Swedish with a French accent? I know not. One of the mysteries. I'd just like to quickly sidetrack into Duolingo as a concept. 
you had a winning streak, and anyone who's done Duolingo knows that that's how they entice you along. What do you reckon the psychology of Duolingo is in getting you in and keeping you going? Oh, I think it's it's a helpful thing to uh, to have a winning streak. What it means is the number of day consecutive days you've been practicing, you keep going higher and higher, and it means that the stakes get higher uh, as you. Uh, as you progress, you don't want to lose a streak of 20, you don't want to lose a streak of 100, and by the time you're about 235, where I was, I'd found it helpful because on a day where you're a little tired, you think, I can't lose my streak, I must do a little bit. And even if you do five minutes, that's fine. But often after doing five minutes, I'd want to do a bit more. And uh, however, as we were travelling, there's time differences, there's periods of time on the airplane where you're not connected to the internet, and unfortunately, through that, even though I was practising on the airplane, I lost my winning streak. I was devastated. It was back to zero from 235. So I suppose you'd missed out on your dopamine hit. <laughs> I suppose I had, yes. A little dopamine hit sort of helps in a way, yes, sometimes. Mm. So just to wrap up on the subject of languages... How do you think it's influenced your love of words? What does it do to you when you are presented with a situation of strange words? What, what do you want to do? Oh, the really wonderful thing about learning Swedish for me was it felt like it was the other half of English. So French is, is a Latin-based language, as are Spanish and Italian and, and others, and it informs about half of English. But Swedish, being a Germanic language, was like the other half of English, and it sort of felt like a completion. Uh, and it was really very fulfilling from that point of view. And it really deepened my love of the, the history of English. And uh, uh, I've gone and explored how the English language came about, and we'll probably discuss that at some time. And you've joined up with me on some of those facts. And that's why we both laughed at Proto-Indo-European, which is the source of Latin-based languages and, and Indian and many other European and pan-European languages. Uh, and we both do enjoy words and we're always looking up etymologies and trying to guess where it's from. And we're getting better at that. So it's a fun little game. Yeah, it has. It's proved fun. We'll take one more sponsor before we close and then we'll come back to you with some classic Duolingo phrases. My name is Océane, I come from Martinia, and you are listening to Radio Carom. <laughs> on a final note, just to wrap up today, there's whole memes on the web devoted to Duolingo and the odd phrases that oh, they come up with. Absolute doozies. And you wonder what were the minds behind constructing these phrases. They're not necessarily obscene or they're not... It's hard to describe them, but they're just so unusual in... It's, is, is it something like the typical example of learning French? The pen of my uncle is smaller than the garden of my aunt? Oh, that famous one. <laughs> no, it's not. And, and they're not, uh, I mean, there's, 
you know, he is rich but she is poor features heavily in the French one. It drives you mad after a while. <laughs> but there's some real oddities. Sarah's got a particularly good one here when she was using Swedish. Oh, I just remember coming across this and just my eyes widened. I just burst out laughing. And, uh, and I said to Andrew, which means, why is there a Norwegian architect in my bed? Which has led to a whole commentary on the web as to why that phrase was picked. But, but, <laughs> but, apparently, there, it. <laughs> but apparently there is a comedian who does have an episode of things and one of his titled, why is there a Norwegian architect in my bed? So you can look that up on, on Google. I've just got three here, which I just can't understand why they would have introduced these. The first one is obviously someone was doing Welsh, and one of the sentences given to them was, Owen is eating parsnips in the rain. (laughs) Uh, Go figure. But then later on, that person who was studying Welsh produced this gem. After the dragon had eaten Owen, it went to Cardiff. I just love it. Again, I wonder if Owen was parsnip flavoured. <laughs> Clearly something happened on the way to Cardiff. And the final one, which just came out of nowhere, is that Anna is eating a canary. <laughs> Poor canary. Again, you look at these and, and you shake your head, but nevertheless I'm sure they gave the students of those particular languages a lot of fun. Do not eat a baby bird. That would surely, surely be, be absurd. absurd. And thank you very much for today. We've had the most wonderful time presenting. It's been a treat having Andrew on. And I think we'll invite him back. Don't you think so? Thanks, everybody. Cheers. Sky, cause you're a sky